Welcome to the first episode of the Buyer Beware podcast, where we uncover the seedy underbelly of marketing, branding, and all things business, and talk about horrifying marketing campaigns, baleful corporate blunders, and crimes of the heart, and the pocketbook. Today we're going to dive into the controversial world of New Coke and how what was supposed to be a brave new cola quickly became a lesson on American traditionalism. Let's start with explaining what exactly New Coke was. For everyone that missed both the 80s and Stranger Things Season 3, New Coke was Coca-Cola's attempt to compete with Pepsi's skyrocketing cola market share that launched on April 23, 1985. At this point, Coca-Cola already had an extensive history and was on the verge of celebrating its 100th anniversary. They had effectively positioned themselves as an American institution and consistently dominated the cola market from its founding all the way to 1983, when a combination of Pepsi's sweeter taste and Diet Cola's draw led to sharply declining market share for Coke for the first time in its entire history. Coke's position in the American psyche was based on their focus on traditionalism and Americana that defined their brand and performed incredibly well in their key geographical focus in the South, below the Mason-Dixon line. Coke was a household staple in much of the Southern U.S. and was marketed to rural America as an essential that they were more than happy to accept. Coke's history of being invented in Atlanta helped to contribute to their dedicated following in the South. However, with plummeting shares in the early 80s, combined with a quickly deteriorating head of the company and a new CEO by the name of Roberto Coyeza, who openly declared there were no sacred cows in Coke's business model under his reign, it was only a matter of time before Coke had to do something to stay relevant. Thus, Project Kansas was born. William Allen White, a beloved author, politician, and newspaper editor from Kansas, was chosen as the internal face of the project, and his image hung in several Coke executives' offices as they set about creating a new cola to compete better with their increasing competition. Executives started writing business and marketing plans referencing Normandy as though this was their one and only chance that they had to change the tide of the Great Cola Wars. So Coca-Cola dove headfirst into the idea of a replacement for their existing formula, deciding not to allow the potential to cannibalize their market by introducing a new and improved Coke at the same time. They believed everyone would either love or come around to it eventually, though the focus groups in testing would eventually suggest a weak bias towards either cola and an easily changed attitude against new Coke with even a single dissenter in the group. That is to say that in almost every focus group where there was one person who didn't like the idea of a changed Coke, 
the rest of the group quickly changed their minds to agree with the single person against it. Traditionalism was an easy value to demand of others within a group, and this groupthink would eventually play a much larger part in the failure of the COLA than Coke executives ever thought. Ignoring these negative, red-flag focus groups, Coke decided to move forward with the sweeter-tasting, corn-syrup-based version of the recipe for the recently released Diet Coke and set out to launch as quickly as possible. With emphatic support from their bottlers, New Coke was set to be a step into the future of America's legacy. Yet, of all the mistakes Coke made leading up to the launch of New Coke, one of the biggest gaffes came in the form of their announcement location, New York. From disrupting the traditional, reliable formula to disregarding their southern roots, Coke had committed the ultimate Yankee betrayal to those in the South that felt abandoned. The once key demographic became disillusioned with the idea of New Coke before it even launched, and many refused to even try it out, out of principle of Coke's desertion. Building a brand that relied on America's resilient traditional values and the title of classic, the announcement of New Coke seemed like a bomb waiting to drop. And drop it did. In a series of unfortunate events, New Coke quickly became the most hated cola in America, with newspaper articles with wild quotes, like the one from Dan Locke, declaring launch day as the blackest day of his life. Though, strangely, corporate America wasn't aware of the brewing storm, it seemed. McDonald's happily switched over to new Coke. Bottlers swore they'd sue if Coke ever stopped making their new favorite cola, and Bill Cosby even signed on as the lead spokesperson for new Coke's campaigns. However, the rose-colored glasses didn't stick around for long. When it was clear America hated new Coke, it quickly became a national joke, with Pepsi more than happy to publish a few digs at Coca-Cola's expense, declaring themselves as the official winner of the Cola Wars. Cosby, ironically in hindsight, backed out of the new Coke sponsorship deal, stating that new Coke hurt his credibility. More and more articles were released by local papers, with the Wausau Daily Herald telling the story of someone who said, My life is out of control, and now Coke is abandoning me. Neville Isdell, a Coke executive, was accosted in the airport in his bag with new Coke stickers attached, was stolen, being told, You ruined my life. Most notably, however, was the introduction of the Old Cola Drinkers of America Association, started by a public relations retiree in Seattle by the name of Gay Mullins. The group declared a war on New Coke, demanding the return of the old formula. The group, under Mullins, began selling war kits of stickers, signs, and banners 
for those who hated New Coke so much that they were willing to actively protest its existence. The old cola drinkers of America condemned the use of high fructose corn syrup in the new recipe, with some members even going so far as to claim the Coca-Cola company was trying to poison the American people. People were very willing to get involved in the fight against the reformation of what they perceived as a true American institution, and Mullins was ready to lead the fight whatever the cost, or the reward. There are a few very important things to know about Gay Mullins from around this time period. First is that he had recently borrowed $120,000 to open a new public relations firm, and that throughout his campaign against New Coke, he continued to offer his services to the Coca-Cola company. Second, that he also approached Pepsi to offer his PR services and also offered to expand his attacks on Coke if they agreed to partner with him. Third, and perhaps most importantly, Mullins could not choose New Coke in blind taste tests and almost always chose New Coke over the old Coke when he did make a choice. Mullen's number one complaint was about the transition to high fructose corn syrup, and his taste objections came into question when it was revealed that Coca-Cola Classic had been transitioning to high fructose corn syrup for years, and the ingredient had already replaced cane sugar at almost every Coke bottler in America already. Mullins asked Coca-Cola for money to shut up and withdraw his anti-New Coke campaign multiple times and was turned away every time, leading to many people questioning the validity of his objections at all. But despite these facts and the objective slight preference that the average American had for New Coke, the reputation damage had already been done. There was no saving new Coke. Despite extensive catch-the-wave ad campaigns featuring the notorious 80s AI character Max Headroom that led to an overnight influx of young Coke, new Coke buyers, and despite nationwide taste tests being favorable, the mob mentality against the redesigned cola wasn't fixable. The South and Gay Mullins had unknowingly conspired in New Coke's murder. The South hadn't gotten over the Civil War and was defensive over anything and everything that they perceived as their own. Thomas Oliver, author of the book The Real Coke, The Real Story, said, to them, it was an extension of the Civil War. The sentiment was heightened dramatically by Koch's direct targeting of this traditionalism and value system of anti-change for most of its hundred-year history up to this point. And the new leadership, largely from outside the U.S. and largely Latin American, did not understand the severity or the significance of this hairpin trigger. Wholesome family values sell cola, but also demand consistency, whim catering, and reliability in return. 
the sugar increase didn't help as their increase in sweetness in New Coke was related in newspapers and journals to femininity and communism. It's impossible to talk about the story of New Coke without discussing the impact the Red Scare had on the product. Roberto Goizeta, the recently named CEO, was born and raised in Cuba. To much of the South, and even in the more traditional northern regions, not only did they think Coke was changing its traditional recipe, but they thought a communist was doing it. Many couldn't imagine a bigger betrayal. Freedom of choice has always been a voting issue to these communities, and they were choosing to veto this unexpected change the only way they knew how, no matter how delicious they actually found the product. And Gay Mullins was another major player. After gathering 100,000 members, spending countless dollars of his own money on the cause, and filing a class action lawsuit, Mullins was a failed con artist. None of the money-making schemes from his anti-New Coke campaign worked out, and all he got in the end was the first delivery of old Coke when it returned, and a stomach ache after two rum and Cokes. Funnily enough, while New Coke continued to tank, the other two recent Coke releases were selling extremely well, with Diet Coke having been launched just two years before, with an identical formula to New Coke, except with artificial sweetener instead of corn syrup. Cherry Coke had also been introduced recently. In fact, Cherry Coke was launched almost concurrently with the launch of New Coke, with little to no media attention and strong market penetration. Finally, on July 10th, 1985, just three months after its launch, General Hospital made the announcement that Coke Classic was coming back and that New Coke was no more. Coca-Cola tried one more time to keep New Coke by rebranding it to Coke 2, but despite a massive marketing campaign, there was no saving the recipe, and all iterations of the drink were removed from the market in 1990. Strangely, the recipe for New Coke was based on Diet Coke, which remains much more popular in modern day than Coke Zero, the true diet counterpart for Coke Classics recipe. Maybe the new recipe would have been viable had Coke's brand positioning been more flexible. But with Gay Mullen's financial agenda and mob mentality both in the picture, I have a feeling new Coke was always going to fail. From floundering startups to the most notorious brands in the world, there are companies who have a dark and sordid history that they don't want anyone to know about. From crimes of passion, to calculated fraud, to accidental corporate blunders, there's a world of mystery left at the feet of companies trying to earn an extra dollar. From macabre marketing departments, to executioner executives, what are the shadowy secrets brands are hiding that they never want to see the light of day? Join me, Jane Hargrave, 
and uncovering the seedy underbelly of marketing, branding, and all things business in the new podcast, Buyer Beware.